morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. You know, you're, out, you're here on the first week of a new series. It's called Formed. And it's a six-week series on the major theological themes of Jeremiah. Don't look so excited. Um, <laughs> no, the reality is, is the book of Jeremiah, uh, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, is a tough book. And even if you've been around church for a while, around the Bible for a while, there is a chance that you either have never read Jeremiah or it has been quite some time. Last time I picked up the book was in Bible school where they forced you to read the Bible, which is not the most devotional way in which to engage the text. Uh, but since then, I haven't had much interaction with it. So before we get into our six-week study, it would probably be helpful uh, to kind of set some context because the book's intimidating, it's intimidating because it's a long book. If you've thumbed through your Old Testament, you've probably seen it. It's 52 chapters. It's lengthy. And if you've started to read it, you understand that the, the language is somewhat repetitive. You feel like you're reading the same thing over and over. Uh, it also makes the assumption that you have a basic understanding of ancient Israelite history. And so if you're not familiar with the storyline of Israel and you come to the text and you read it, uh, you may be frustrated. It might be intimidating because... Uh, they're talking about events that maybe you're not super familiar with. And if you're a learner and you say, well, that's okay that I'm not uh, super familiar with the events, I will, I will engage with the book and the, the events of the book will unfold and I'll begin to understand some of Israel's history. Well, unlike other books in our Old Testament, Jeremiah makes no attempt um, to go chronologically. Uh, there's no attempt to uh, start the story where it starts and to take the reader on a journey to the end of the story. It's it's arranged thematically. It's arranged theologically. And so all of these things put together make it an intimidating book. And so for the next five minutes, what I want to do is I want to kind of give us an orientation to Jeremiah. I want to set the political and the historical and the theological context of the words that we read, the sermons that we read in this book, because it's significant. You know, if you're familiar with Israel's history, you know that in the Old Testament we read early on that Israel... In God, they enter into an agreement. They enter into a covenant together. And the terms of the agreement are this. God says to Israel, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to allow you to be the example for other nations. And in fact, other nations are going to come to know me, the one true God, through you. That's God's part of the, of the agreement. Israel's part of the agreement of the covenant is that they are going to live a certain way. There are certain expectations that God has for them. And as long as they live a certain way, they treat others in a certain way, they interact with God in a certain way, this agreement will hold true. Uh, some of the requirements are the things like the Ten Commandments, okay, and the other laws in the Old Testament, the, the rituals and the festivals and the offerings and all that stuff is wrapped up into this is how you should act. This is how I make you set apart from the other nations. This is how I show other nations who I am through you. So as long as you do that, I will continue to be your God. You will continue to be my people. Well, you might know that Israel kind of has uh, an on-again, off-again relationship with the covenant. Okay, there are periods in their history where they uh, keep the covenant closely. There are periods where it is a distant memory. They go up and down. And eventually, the lack of covenant keeping leads to the, the kingdom to be divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. As a result of their sin and their apostasy. So now you have the northern kingdom that's called Israel, and you have the southern kingdom called Judah, which has the holy city of Jerusalem in it, which houses the temple of God in it. So you have these two entities. 
Northern Kingdom continues their backward slide into sin and apostasy, and eventually they are taken over by the Assyrian army as a result of their failure to keep the covenant. The Southern Kingdom, Judah, lasts a little longer. Depending on their king and their leaders and the season they're in, they either keep the covenant closely or they're far from it, kind of following the same trajectory of their nation from its inception. But eventually, they have fallen so far from the covenant. It has been so long since they have kept the covenant. And we're not talking minor offenses. They forgot to keep the Sabbath, you know, one week. They didn't offer the correct sacrifice. I mean, this is a pattern of neglect. There is a blatant disregard for God's way of living. They've, they've neglected him so long that God sends his prophet Jeremiah, which is where he enters the scene. And God gives Jeremiah a message. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go tell the nation of Israel that they need to repent of what they're doing. They need to remember the covenant. And if they don't remember the covenant, if they fail to do this, then I'm going to have to allow some hard things to happen. I'm going to allow Babylon to come in, the superpower, King Nebuchadnezzar, to come in to take over their land, to destroy it, to destroy the temple, and they're going to be carried back to Babylon as exile. So you go and tell them that. So the book of Jeremiah is a collection of Jeremiah's sermons during this pivotal time in Israel's history, a crucial time, a confusing time, a dark time in Israel's history in which he's pleading with his people, remember God, remember the covenant. They don't. And so God does exactly what He said he would do through his prophet, the nation of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, the superpower. They come in and they just ravish the land. They destroy it. They destroy the temple. And they carry the nation of Israel back to Babylon where they live as strangers and foreigners in a pagan country. What's interesting about the book, though, is the original words of Jeremiah are during this time period leading up to the exile. But then you have a nation sitting in exile. You have God's chosen people sitting in a pagan nation. And they're, they're asking the question, how could this have happened? They're asking, why did this happen? How did we get here? And it's with that backdrop that a whole bunch of Jewish editors and scribes, primarily a guy named Baruch, where he compiles a list, he compiles Jeremiah's sermons into a book, which is the book that we have. So he compiles Jeremiah's sermons and he hands it to the nation of Israel sitting in exile as a reminder, as an answer to their theological question, how did we get here? So you have the original audience of Jeremiah's sermons pre-exile that are being warned. And then you have the original readers of the book that we have post-exile explaining how they got to where they are. Which is why there's really no attempt to go in any sort of chronological order. They don't need a chronological retelling of the events. They just went through it. Their issue is theological. Their issue is relational. How could we have ended up here? And so as they read the text, as they, as they remember Jeremiah's sermons, they, they, they have to remember two things as they re-listen to his sermons. One is they had a huge part in this. They failed to keep the covenant. They were warned and they didn't listen. So undoubtedly, as they, as they remember Jeremiah's sermons, there's this sense of guilt, there's this sense of responsibility. But also undeniable in the book of Jeremiah, as they would be reading this in exile, as they would be reminded of their situation, they would hear very clearly that God has a plan for their nation. 
And that God had a plan for their nation before the exile, and it was to use them, and they were to be his people. They didn't hold up their end of the bargain, and so now God has a plan to bring them into exile, to restore them, and God actually even has a plan post-exile. It's very clear in the book of Jeremiah that God is in control. Even in the midst of their most, one of their most confusing, embarrassing, darkest seasons of their nation, they're reminded that God has a plan. Perhaps the best illustration, the best language around God's sovereignty is in Jeremiah 18, which is what we're going to use to set up the entire six-week sermon series. It's this image of God as a potter. He, 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 he displays himself like a potter sitting behind a wheel. And although there are lots of other instances in Jeremiah where we see God's plan, where we're, where we're reminded of God's sovereignty, this image kind of sticks out to me. This image would have stuck out to the ancient Israelites as they remembered God's role in their situation. So this is, this is the text this morning. It says this, Jeremiah 18, verse 1, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. It was spoiled. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to, to me, and he said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent. And I will not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built built up and planted, and if, that, if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I intended to do for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you. I'm devising a plan against you, so turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions, but they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our plans we will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. This picture of God as the potter, the one who is in complete control. As I read that, and as you maybe followed along on the screen, I wonder if, I wonder if you felt the same tension that I felt when I read it. Okay, Maybe not, but when I read the text, and as I've continued to think on the text, there's, to me, I feel, I feel kind of a profound tension. On one hand, you have God as the potter who is in complete and utter control, right? You see that, uh, you see that in verse 6. He says, Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does, like clay in the hand of the potter? So are you in my hand, Israel. On one hand, you have the image of God who can do whatever he wants to do. He's the potter. The nations creation, the world is clay, and he has the right to do with it whatever he pleases. And on one side, that's, that makes sense, of course. Of course God can do whatever he wants to do. But as you read on, you realize that there might be another side to this coin. If, I don't know if you caught in verse 4 specifically. He says, the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. It was spoiled. There was something wrong with it. So the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as it seemed best to him. It seems like the condition of the clay 
somehow matters, right? You have God who is in complete control. He can do whatever he wants. He's the potter. He's God. He, he, he has a plan. And yet the condition of the clay, that it was spoiled, there was something wrong with it. There was an air bubble in it. There was a rock in it. It was too dry. Something was wrong with it. And so God changed how he was going to execute his plan. He tore it down, and he built up another pot. The condition of the clay has, has some role in this. You read on and you see that, that when he starts to talk about the nations, he takes the metaphor and he actually starts to talk literally about nations. And he says, if a nation, if a nation does this, then I'll do this. But if a nation doesn't do this, then I won't do this. And if they don't do this, then I will do this. It seems all very conditional. Like the nations have some sort of role in the outplaying of history. Then if you, if you skip ahead to Jeremiah 25, you see that God actually, in the end, is going to punish the nation of Babylon. He's going to punish King Nebuchadnezzar for what they're about to do, which he has explicitly said is part of his plan. He's going to use the superpower Babylon to come and to execute his plan, but it doesn't seem like he is endorsing the way in which they're going to come in, tear down the land, and take the people back. They're still held accountable for their actions, even though he's using their actions in his plan. You, you feel the tension? So which... So which is it? Is God in complete control, or do we have an opportunity to shape and mold our own creation? I don't know. I have no idea. That's not a joke. I don't know. Christopher Wright is, a, is an Old Testament scholar. He's written a lot of commentaries on books of the Old Testament, Old Testament theologies, professor. Also has an incredibly pastoral heart. And so in his commentary on this passage, this is the way that he summed up this tension. He says this. The final result was a mysterious combination of the sovereign will of the potter and the condition of the clay. And whether the first announced plan was fulfilled seemed to depend not only on the words and hand of the potter, but to some extent also on the response of the clay. God's sovereignty responds to human choices. Human actions affect the way God implements God's plans. Human actions affect the way that God implements God's plan. In other words, these are still God's plans. And to be honest, God's plan, his overall plan, has not changed. But based on what is happening in the world, based on how people choose to act, the way in which he executes that plan seems to have some give to it. There seems to be some wiggle room in how he goes about executing his plan, although his plan never changes, and although it very definitely is his plan. Part of the tension is because God has chosen to execute his plan in the context of relationships. He has chosen us, people, nations, as his primary agents to execute his plan. And in doing that, he has chosen an imperfect people. He has chosen people who can change. He has chosen people who have some sort of free will. And in doing that, he has created a tension for us. A good tension, because it means we have freedom to do what we want to do. It means that we can choose. But it does create a tension. If you, and this is even bared out in Jeremiah, if you read uh, specifically Jeremiah 2 and 3. We're going to talk a little bit about 2 and 3 next week, but if you want to go home and read 2 and 3, you're going to see an interesting portrait of God. Okay, Old Testament God is typically characterized as an angry, vengeful God, trigger-happy, 
pleased to, to offer some sort of destruction to the earth. That's not, that's not the image that you read in Jeremiah 2 and 3. The image of God in Jeremiah 2 and 3 is gentle, is relational, is hurting, actually hurting. His heart is hurting. The image in 2 where he describes, he's reminiscing to Israel about the good old days. Literally, he's reminiscing and said, Israel, remember, remember when we used to do this together like a bride on their honeymoon? It was, it's, remember how good it used to be? And then he turns the corner and he says, but, but you've abandoned me. You've neglected me. You've gone after other gods. And because of that, you, you get the sense that God is actually relationally hurt by what Israel has done. In choosing to execute his plan through relationships, God takes the risk. God takes the risk of opening himself up to human emotions, to feeling pain and rejection and abandonment and infidelity. And so his plan now to allow Israel to go into exile is not the plan of an angry, vicious, vengeful, trigger-happy dictator who at the sight of a minor offense uh, calls down devastation. That's not the image we get in Jeremiah. We have to get that image, that caricature of God out of our minds. It's not there. What is there is a God who is engaged, who has chosen his people and loves them deeply, and they've walked away from him, and he's hurt, and he's pained. And so he says, now, now the plan has to go through this little detour. I don't want, I don't want the plan to go through this detour. You're going to have to go through the 70 years of exile, and it's going to be painful, and it's going to hurt Ultimately, my plan is to bring you back. I'm doing this to restore you. I'm doing this because I'm not done with you yet. But in the meantime, you have to walk through this devastating time, this embarrassing time in your history. You see him cry. You see him grieve over the land that he's created, that he loves, that's going to be destroyed by the four nations. This is the tension that God creates (laughs) because he has chosen to execute his plan in the context of relationships. He sacrifices efficiency for intimacy. It is not the most efficient way for God to execute his plan. It's not. There are far more efficient, far more effective ways that he could, that he could execute his plan, but he has chosen a personal, non-efficient way to do it. It'd be like this image. Okay, this image... This image that's used in Jeremiah 18 of the clay is an intimate image. I mean, it's a very intentional by God to portray himself this way. Okay, we don't see an image of, of a deity who, who makes a machine, okay? And he puts all of the gears in place, and he puts all of the, all of the pieces together, and he puts a final mechanism in place, and he, and he flips a switch, and then he goes and he sits on his throne and he checks in every hundred years or so to make sure things are still trucking along. That's not the image. That's not how he says he interacts with people. That's not how he says he executes his plan. It's not an image where he takes a whole bunch of seeds and just scatters it on the field. And then in 50 years he comes back and it's a beautiful orchard and he says, look, look at my plan. Look how I beautifully executed my plan. The image, the image is this very personal Right? This very intimate image where God, the, the way God chooses to shape his people is literally with his own hands. I mean, this, we can't miss this. The fact that he literally says, the way I'm shaping you is the way a potter puts his hands into the clay and shapes it, and he molds it, and it's active, and it's intimate, and it's personal. 
not efficient. Every piece of clay is a little bit different. Every piece of clay responds a little bit differently to the potter's touch. And although the process is similar, similar in each pot that he makes, each pot is unique. And the process by which he gets to that pot is unique. It's probably, it's probably helpful at this point, we're 20 minutes in, <laughs> it's probably helpful at this point to define what I mean when I say God's plan, okay? Or what scripture means when they say God's plan. Because my gut says that the way that we think of God's plan, the way I think of God's plan, is a little different than what God means when he says, I have a plan. So when we talk about God's plan, when we talk about God's plan for the rest of this series, we're talking about God's, God's macro plan. His plan for all of creation, for all of humanity. Namely this, that his desire, his plan is for all people from all nations to know him, to have relationship with him, to restore and heal this broken world. That's his plan. His plan is to bring everyone to himself, to make himself known to everyone, and to engage in relationship with them, and to start to put this world back together. That's his plan. I don't know. The frustration with that (laughs) for us, for me, is that when I talk about God's plan, I talk about God's plan for my life. Have you ever used those words? What's God's plan for my life? We qualify it. We tend to be somewhat individualistic. We tend to think of God's plan for my life that it could somehow that it could somehow be executed in a vacuum, separate from the millions and billions of other plans that he has. What's God's plan for my specific life? We say things, it's not, it's not, it's not helped by the fact that we say things like, God died for my sins. I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. We go to life group and we say, how's your personal spiritual life going? Those things, there's some value in those expressions because it helps underscore that God is personal and intimate and has a personal relationship with you. The dangerous side effect of that type of language is we tend to think that God's entire plan is about our lives. The dangerous side effect is that we have a skewed perception of our role in God's plan. Because the reality is that God does have a personal plan for your life. His personal plan for your life is to be a part of his plan. I know that's not real helpful. I don't know. That's what it is. God's plan for your life is to be a part of what he is doing, what he has been moving all of history towards. That's his personal plan for your life. Do your choices matter? Yes. Does the car you drive and the house that you live in and the job that you have and the economy and your kids and all, is all that part of it? Yes, but it's part of it. It's a subset. It's nested under the fact that God, is, God has been and always will be moving all of history towards this idea that he wants people to know him and he wants to put this world back together. That's God's plan for your life. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, no relation to Christopher Wright, the other Old Testament guy. Although, well, never mind. Okay, uh, that would be a fun little sketch. But anyways, we'll, we'll work on that on a different day. Um, N.T. Wright describes it this way. This is how he describes our role in God's plan. Okay, it's in his book, Simply Christian. He says this, private spiritual growth and ultimate salvation come rather as the byproducts of the main, central, overarching purpose for which God has called and is calling us. 
The purpose is clearly stated in various places in the New Testament that through the church, God will announce to the wider world that he is indeed its wise, loving, and just creator. And that through Jesus, he has defeated the powers that corrupt and enslave it. And that by his spirit, he is at work to heal and renew it. And our personal salvation, our personal life is a byproduct, has gotten swept up into that larger plan. The other issue is that we also tend to think that we know God's plan, God's personal plan for our lives. So not only do we think that we are kind of the central figure in God's plan that he's rolling out, we also tend to think that we know exactly what he should do with our lives, right? Because we have a plan. We have a plan for our lives. We're going to live in this house in this neighborhood for this amount of time. We're going to have this amount of kids, and they're going to act and look and behave and like this type of thing. I'm going to go to this job and for this amount of time make this amount of money, and then I'll transition, and I'll go up the ladder here, and then we'll age, and we'll retire here and go to Florida here. And, and you, we have this, and we put together a plan for our lives. If you're forward-thinking, you've probably put together a plan for your life, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but the problem is is when, is when we leave little room to recognize that maybe God's plan for our lives and our plan for our lives are two separate things. So I'm talking about. I appreciate that. Maybe they're two separate things. You look at our life and say, well, there's nothing sinful about that plan. So why wouldn't that be God's plan for me? It's a good plan. I feel like this should be God's plan for my life. And all of a sudden, God's plan for our life starts to sound a lot like our plan for our life. Which is why, and I hope this doesn't offend too many people, which is why probably the only verse that you know from Jeremiah is Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And you read that verse and you say, plans for you, that you must be me, because I'm somewhat individualistic, and plans to prosper. I want a plan to prosper. I'll take one of those plans. And we miss the fact that this, is, this was meant for a nation, the nation of Israel, who had been, who had been promised a great plan. They had been told they were the agents of salvation for the world, and they're sitting in exile, and they're wondering, is this plan still on? And God says, yes, the plan is still on. I still have a plan for you, and it's a good plan. Listen, if that verse is framed in your cubicle, okay, or tattooed on your arm, okay, you do not have to remove it. Remove it. It's an incredible verse that reminds us that God is not done with his people. The verse isn't just about you. You can still have it tattooed. It's just not for you. It'd be like this. We'll take our clay again. Maybe you're, maybe you're a Christ follower. Maybe you've been to church. Maybe, you, maybe you've been around this for a while. And so you understand that you're a piece of clay, okay? You don't have to get there. You understand that. So you say, this is my piece of clay. And I know, I know that God is ultimately the one that's going to shape this. You concede that. You understand that. But we say, you know what I think this piece of, I know, know how I think God should shape this piece of clay. You know what I think God should make out of this piece of clay? I think he should make a nice pot because we need more pots in the world. So he says, I'm going to make a nice, I think God should make a nice pot out of this piece of clay. Maybe, maybe something like this, okay? This is what my life should be. This is how God should use me. The problem is God might be saying, listen, I am making a pot. And it's beautiful. I have this incredible plan for it. And it's going to be amazing. But I'm not going to make it solely out of your piece of clay. 
In fact, you are going to have a part in this. You're just not going to be, we'll just kind of stick it on here. Just that's going to be your little role in my pot. So you will be a part of the pot. I am indeed making a pot, and that's where you fit. And so then on the pot, it doesn't look too bad. But then you take it off and you say, what the heck is this? <laughs> that's, not, that's not very glamorous. That's not the plan that I had. It, I understand that it's a part of it, but that's not, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't the plan that I had for my life. Or maybe, maybe this example will resonate. And this is just a hypothetical example. Maybe you're a, a high school pastor in a community church in Glen Ellen. This is a hypothetical. And you're scheduled to preach on a random Sunday in February. Let's call it February 12th, okay? And you're excited about it. You prepared for it. You think God has a message through which that you are going to preach. And so you get up on the morning of at 5.30 and your stomach's not quite right, hypothetically. And you get up. You can't figure out what's wrong. You make your way to the bathroom, to the home office, and you pass out, hypothetically. And your wife, we'll call her Brittany, <laughs> comes in to the home office, and she starts slapping you. That's not hypothetical. That happened. <laughs> you wake up. You're sweaty. You're, you're clammy. You're confused. You don't know why you're on the bathroom floor. And your wife says, we're going to the ER. I'm going to call your executive pastor. We'll call him Dave. And we're getting you checked out. We can end the hypothetical shtick. That was the, that was, that was the events of last week. Got it. That was the events of last week. I had a plan. I had planned to preach this message last week. And while I was preparing a message to preach on God's plan, God was preparing Dave to preach a message on what it looks like to have a transforming relationship with Jesus. And so Dave got up here on this platform and he preached a message, a message in which people are still talking about the impact that his message, his words had on their personal relationship with Jesus. A message in which at the end of his message, he felt so prompted by the Holy Spirit to give an invitation to people to say, listen, if you want today to be your day, we've been talking about transformation. You haven't started this process yet. If you want today to be the day that you start a relationship with Jesus, then today can be the day. And seven people say, I want that to be today. And so seven people accept Jesus last week, and I'm over in the ER because that my plan didn't work. And I guarantee you it wasn't Dave's plan. And I know for a fact it wasn't Donnie's plan. I know that. But you would have a hard time, you would have a hard time convincing me that that wasn't God's plan. Listen, our plans are not God's plans. I also want to acknowledge a little bit of this, of, of, of my tension got resolved in three days. Went to the ER, got some fluid, came to work on Tuesday, heard about the events of the weekend, and said, oh, that's how it all works together. Sweet. That was really cool. Maybe I'll use that next week in my sermon. It actually helps me. So I want to acknowledge the fact, as we close, I want to acknowledge the fact that some of you are sitting in this room and you've been waiting weeks, months, or years to try and figure out how the events of your life fit into God's plan. 
you've, you've been humbled enough, you're sensitive, sensitive enough to know that, we, that God doesn't fit into our plans, that we fit into his plans. So you, you've, you've set that groundwork, you understand that, but you're still struggling with to figure out how and why. And you're waiting for that resolution. Certain events didn't go the way that you thought they should go. Because the reality is, none of us say, I have a plan for my life. And the plan is to deal with chronic illness. The plan is to deal with an upside-down economy. The plan is to bounce from job to job. The plan is to have difficult children. That's none of our plans. Of course not. Our plans are only good plans. Our plans only accommodate our preferences. So how do we sit in that tension? How do we do that? Because it's hard when you don't know. Even though you're trusting, even though, even though you know that, that, that the whole thing's not about you, there's still, a, there's still a tension to know this thing that has been nagging for years. I don't understand how God could possibly use this. And so as we close, we're going to sing together. I'm going to come back up at the end and offer an insight that might be helpful. But as we do, we're going to sit in that tension. We're going to sit in the tension of not knowing. And we're still going to sing. And we're still going to allow these words to influence us and to change us. And we're still going to trust. And I'm not going to come up and offer some silver bullet or anything like that, obviously. But I do think it's appropriate to sit and to ask the question, what is God doing in my life? How might I be a part of his plan? God, we are grateful that you have a plan. And not knowing is hard because we like to know. And it not being the plan that we have is hard because we like to be in control. So if we're sitting here and we're actually processing this and thinking, I do pray that you would give us some comfort today. Give us the ability to trust. We pray this in your name. Amen. I understand that a sermon like this can be frustrating because what do you do with it? There's not a, there's not a silver bullet. There's not a quick fix. There's not a four-step process to, to becoming better clay. Or to, I mean, I don't, what do you do? And so let me just offer this suggestion. That, and I believe this, and if I, if I get a chance to, to be up here more often, you'll probably hear this a lot, is that sometimes the most practical thing you can do is to think rightly about ourselves and about God. Sometimes the most practical thing we can do is to think correctly about who God is and who we are. And while it's not a quick fix, and while it's not a four-step process, it does start to reorient our mind. It does start to change our heart. It does start to change the expectations that we have of God does start to shed some light on what our responsibilities are. It starts to broaden our perspective. It's, it's the foundation by which we can take some other next practical steps. Sometimes the most practical thing we can do is to think correctly about who God is and who we are. Look, if you're, if you're like me, as I, as I was studying a little bit this past week, I started to think about, well, if I'm just this little piece of clay, then maybe God doesn't actually need me. Maybe I'm not actually important. Maybe I don't matter. I don't know if any of you felt that as we were talking. 
as we start to talk about our lives and what God wants to do or not do with us. I don't know if any of you thought that. I thought that. I thought, well, if I'm just, if I'm just a part of the plan, if, he's, if I'm not the whole thing, then, then do I even matter at all? And so to that, I would just say, I can't think of anything more significant. I can't think of anything mattering more than God saying, I've chosen you, and I want to use you. It just, means, it just means that maybe the whole world isn't about us. I think we can come to grips with that. The fact that God said, I want to use this piece of clay in my plan. You're going to have a part in what I am doing through all of history and for all the nations is incredibly significant. It adds tremendous value to you and your life and your choices. Listen, as we close this morning, I'm glad that you came. I hope this was helpful. I'm excited for the next five weeks to talk about some other themes in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to use this plan language to kind of filter in through all the other themes that we're going to go through because we, don't, we want to be reminded that God always has a plan, always has a plan, and he wants to use us. There'll be some prayer people down front if you're interested. For whatever reason, you want to pray with someone this week, we would love for you to come down front. And I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. God, we're grateful that you have chosen us to be part of your plan. And so as we head to our jobs and our families, our communities, our schools, God, I pray that we would think rightly, think correctly about who you are and who we are. And that we wouldn't allow that to cast some sort of self-doubt or we wouldn't allow that to demean our value. It just would give us a proper perspective on what you are doing in and through this world and the role that we can play. We love you this morning. We are so grateful that you have chosen to interact with this world actively, intimately. And we love you for it. We pray this in your name. Amen.